Colin Robertson, good to have you with me once again. Good to be with you again, Mark. All right, we have this NATO meeting. World leaders are there. What are the key issues now that uh, seem to be dividing NATO this time? Well, it's their 70th anniversary, so that's an achievement. I think alliances, if you look back over the centuries, usually last about 20, 30 years. So this one has had a long history. It's always been a bit fractious. But what is remarkable about this alliance, it's also almost tripled its membership. From the original 12, there are now 29 members. So what's dividing it? Well, there's always an argument about who pays what. The biggest giver is the United States. It's, it was the architect of the alliance. It provides collective security for essentially the European democracies. It was set up as the uh, bulwark against what they then saw as a threat from the Soviet Union. And the, as, as one of the, their first secretary general uh, termed it, it was to keep the Russians out, the Germans down, and the Americans in. And to a large degree, that's still what it's about. It's, it's keeping the, the Russians out, and especially since the in, uh, invasion by Russia of Ukraine in 2014. Until then, there was some hope that Russia might even join NATO. But then with the annexation of Crimea and, of course, the hot war that still goes on in the Ukraine, and the, the real Russian threat, the Russians not using necessary military force, although they now have improved their military, but using cyber and, for example, they shut down the lights in Estonia, and they did a similar thing in Romania a few years ago. And disinformation has, has been well illustrated by intelligence agencies, and as we saw in the 2016 U.S. campaign, where the Russians really did actively intervene through fake news to try and subvert the democratic process, and they have been doing that in other parts of Europe. So that's part of the threat. Uh, the, I mentioned the division around who pays what. The Americans originally paid half the bills. Now they pay about three-quarters of the bills. Every American president since Harry Truman has said the Allies should be doing more, but Donald Trump has been particularly uh, Trumpian, saying, well, if you don't pay the bills, we're not going to defend you. And so that's a real threat. And it's actually worked. The alliance is now paying more into the pot, and it's probably, in, in terms of readiness and capacity, it's as probably as powerful today as, uh, as it has ever been. I noticed a report saying that in, in Canada, the uh, liberal administration under Trudeau is, is desperately trying to scrape together any and all bills possible to, to show that they're increasing their defense spending. <laughs> is, yes, is, no, that, that's, that's quite true. The uh, Canada, when Trump was elected president in 2016, we were paying 0.99% of our GDP towards defense. Uh, I may have said at the outset, the NATO, the, the norm that NATO set for itself in 2014 at an, an earlier summit in Wales was 2% of GDP to be spent on defense by 2024. The Trudeau government came out with a defense policy in 2017, largely in response to the election of Donald Trump and his demand that the Allies pay more, that would see us rise to 1.4, 1.5%. We're currently about 1.27%, but we've got a major rearmament campaign going on. I was in Halifax two weekends ago, and I saw the Harry DeWolf, the first of our offshore patrol ships, is now afloat in Halifax Harbor. We've purchased temporary jets to serve as a temporary uh, plan until we decide on what our next generation of fighter jets going to be. We've, and we've actually assigned six CF-18s permanently now to defense of NATO. And we've got warships and submarines in the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean as well. We are, we've, we've, troops were uh, 
leading the brigade in Latvia as part of the that readiness that I talked about that uh, prepared for in case the Russians decided to come across in, in Eastern Europe. But what about the, I mean, you, you, you mentioned Russia uh, and NATO's concerns about Russia and, and their designs and actions and so on, but what about China? I mean, NATO theoretically doesn't get involved in that sector of the world, but cyber warfare, for example, is everywhere, and it certainly threatens NATO. And they talk about uh, Huawei and 5G and, and the five eyes, which is connected with, with NATO and defense and everything else. So what about China in this discussion this time around? Well, I think China, one of the things that, I, that will probably come out of this summit is a, a look at what are the threats. And certainly there's a sense now that China, with its claims to the South China Sea, which, well, it's out of NATO's theater, the, the, through that part of the Pacific, that's where 70% of the world's commerce goes. And if those sea lanes are not sort of free for navigation, then that has an effect on particularly NATO countries because we are all major trading nations, particularly Germany. And China, through its Belt and Road Initiative, has also, through the terms of action, has essentially taken over management of the Port of Piraeus. Greece is a member of NATO, for example, and that gives a number of NATO countries concerns. And there is no doubt that China is engaged in cyber theft and intellectual property. So there is a sense, and the Germans a couple of years ago uh, have now labeled China as a strategic competitor, if not adversary. And so, yes, China will now figure into this. And so because it is an authoritarian system, it is seen to be, if not in, in opposition, it, it certainly does not conform to the, the principles of freedom on which NATO is based. Is it possible that NATO could discuss uh, expanding its mandate then? It could, and in fact, it has gone out of theater a couple of times. It is doing anti-piracy work in the Gulf, again, to protect those sea lanes and commerce because they recognize, well, well, it is a military alliance. It is designed as much to be a political alliance and to provide the underpinnings, the stability under which prosperity can grow. That, but what underpins that, of course, is that, that stability, and that stability is provided by that collective security alliance, which is NATO. So as we move forward then, uh, I mean, we had, for example, uh, France's President Macron uh, calling it brain, the, the organization brain dead at one point. Is it still going to be strong? Is it going to come out stronger in the next uh, decade as we pass the 70 mark, or, or how do you see this developing? Well, right now, the, the leadership of NATO has some very colorful characters, some of whom are particularly disruptors, like Donald Trump, the president of Turkey. Mr. Erdogan has essentially invaded Syria because he wanted to push back on what he saw as Kurdish terrorism. But, and that's what led to Emmanuel Macron, president of France, saying that NATO's brain dead because he said that uh, if you took the NATO principle, what happens if Syria and its ally Russia were to, in response to the Turkish invasion, were to push back into Turkey? Would the rest of the alliance go to the defense of Turkey? And that's a fair question. And that's the kind of thing that NATO needs to look at as it looks forward to what is its, its future. Uh, Donald Trump also wants NATO to be more involved 
in dealing with cyber. And, and in fact, NATO is getting more involved in cyber. There's now Centers for Excellence run by NATO in uh, Tallinn and Riga and Helsinki dealing with strategic communications, which is disinformation as well as one directly with cyber and as well one dealing with hybrid warfare, which is a kind of blend of, of cyber as well as disinformation. And he's also, Donald Trump's also talked about NATO getting involved in space because we now know the Russians and the Chinese are looking at, at using space as a sense of military weapon. And so while the United States is getting involved, they think NATO should be there as well. So these are, those are two new areas, the cyber area and the uh, space area, that would complement what uh, NATO is already doing now on land and sea and air. So to, to sum up then, would you say that it's, it's likely to survive quite nicely and, and continue and grow? Yes, if you look at the history of NATO, it's been basically a series of, of, of bumps that set up to, as a defense mechanism against what was then the Soviet Union. Now it's a defense mechanism in part, again, the real threat of Russia, but also other threats. I talked about piracy. We spoke about China. There's also the migration threat from that is, is certainly disrupted and led to the rise of populism in uh, in parts of, of, of Europe. So I'm convinced it will survive. It has a colorful cast of characters, but the the root basis of the alliance, that is to provide that collective security for the Western democracies and beyond, because Japan and Australia and New Zealand are also partner nations now. That fundamental principle remains. We need some form of deterrence and containment against threats, whether they be from state actors like Russia and China, or non-state actors for like al-Qaeda. That's how we got involved in Afghanistan, and that was the only time that, that uh, NATO has actually exercised the, the vital provision, that is, if one is attacked, then all are attacked, and you will respond. And so after 9-11, the NATO went into Afghanistan to contain al-Qaeda because of, of the attacks uh, in uh, New York and Washington. Colin Robertson, thank you so much for this. Thanks, Mark.